Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. This is Matt Tullis. This week on Gangrene Podcast, I talk with Chris Jones. Jones is a writer at large for Esquire. He's also a back page columnist for ESPN the magazine. Jones has twice won National Magazine Awards. In 2009, his story, The Things That Carried Him, won for feature writing. Jones is an expert profile writer. His 2010 piece on the late Roger Ebert is one of the best celebrity profiles ever written. It's touching and poignant, showing a side of the film critic that hadn't been seen since Ebert's battle with cancer. Most recently, Jones turned his eye on a man most have never heard of, but a man who's been involved in nearly every major tragic event in recent U.S. history. We'll talk about his story, Kenneth Feinberg, the nation's leading expert in picking up the pieces today. We'll also talk about his piece in the October issue of Esquire that focuses on the immediate hours after President John F. Kennedy's assassination. I'm especially excited for this episode because Jones was a participant in a virtual roundtable discussion I moderated last year that focused on journalism as a subgenre of creative nonfiction writing. That discussion was published in Creative Nonfiction Magazine and is titled Getting the Story. That discussion ultimately was the inspiration for this podcast. As always, we've linked to many of Jones's stories on our website. We've also linked to Getting the Story. You can find it all at www.gangrythepodcast.com. I'm here with Chris Jones today. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. Chris, let's start things off by talking about the Kenneth Feinberg piece. Can you give us a brief synopsis of that story? Yeah. uh, Ken Feinberg is a lawyer by training who has almost by accident become the guy that we call when tragedy strikes and there is some kind of fund set up and his job is to come in and decide who gets what you know what it's worth if you lose your husband or your wife or you lose an arm and a leg um, you know starting with 9-11 and all the way up through the Boston Marathon he's been this guy who's come in and done this very hard math essentially what, um, what made you want to write about him um, that's a good question. I, uh, <laughs> I guess I'm sort of interested in stories about death. I think I, if I have a, a tick when it comes to writing, I, one of them would be I'm drawn to stories about life and death. Um, my editor sometimes jokes that unless there's a corpse in my story that I'm not happy with it. Um, and I don't know why that is. I think it's 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 I think it's something to do with it just feels more important to me if it's about that kind of thing. And I just thought Ken presented a lot of interesting philosophical questions um that I sort of wrestle with a lot for again, reasons I can't really articulate. Um and he just struck me as an interesting guy. Uh you, you know, when you're doing a story like this, a profile, you need a, a person who can carry a story, and I just felt like Ken was a guy who could. 
Yeah, I was going to say one of the things, I think the best profiles show the subject changing in some way. Mm -hmm. And in this story, you're able to show his change fairly dramatically. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think you're right. That I think, uh, I can't remember now who said it, but uh, I've definitely read people talking about movies, that a great movie has conflict and it also has change, that the, the main character does go through some kind of transformation. And... You don't want to sort of artificially impose those rules onto somebody. Like, if they don't change, they don't change. But in this case, you know, not surprisingly, over the years that Ken has done this work, he's gone through a pretty dramatic philosophical change. And it's, it's what's interesting about Ken is it's not something that he can necessarily sees. I mean, he'll concede that he's sort of more empathetic than he used to be and probably a better listener than he used to be. Uh, less sort of hard-edged lawyer, but talking to people around him, like his wife and his children and people he works with, they've seen a dramatic change in him. And and that sort of helped me, um, I don't know what the word is, that sort of helped me follow him through this journey that he's gone on. And, and, and I like stories that have movement, you know, um, and in this story, it's really sort of, Historical. It's about a bunch of historic events and his roles in them. But through time, you can kind of watch Ken, you know, as a reader, you can watch Ken sort of grow from the first few times he got these phone calls until today when he's become very practiced and, frankly, he's become expert uh, at, at tragedy. He, he knows things about tragedy and our responses to them that most of us don't know. How much did you know about him going into the story before you actually interviewed him? Um, I didn't know very much about him personally. I knew about his work. Uh, when I pitched the story, I had heard a short interview. I want to say it was on NPR. I had heard him on the radio talking about Boston. And Boston was interesting because there, unlike a lot of the situations he was dealing with, you know, there, there was death involved, but, but he was also having to put a value on things like traumatic amputations and what is someone's arm worth, and is that worth the same as a leg, and what's a brain injury worth, and if you lost a hand, you know, what's that worth? And those questions I thought were sort of fascinating, like what, what, are, what is the value of life, and what is the value of parts of our body that are, you know, that we most of us would deem essential to a good life. And so I heard him on the radio talking about that, and that's what got me interested. I pitched it to my editor. My editor was on board pretty quickly. And then I started doing research on, on the other jobs that he had done. But before I met him, I didn't know very much about him at all. Most of the stories that have been written about Ken focus on the policy, you know, how he decides those numbers, how he does the math. And I find that really interesting, but I want also to to look at how doing that math has changed him, how, it, how it's affected his own life, whether he views life differently having done this work. Did you know going in uh, that, he inter that he actually made himself available to meet with all the victims of pretty much every, I guess, tragedy that he... Uh, I don't even know the word to say, that, that he oversees the disbursement of funds for. Did you know he met, meets with those families going in? I had an idea that he, that he met with them. I didn't know the extent of it. Um, and for me, that was almost the most 
it sounds morbid, but that was the most interesting part for me was him talking about those meetings. So, you know, for re- for listeners who haven't read the story, um, Ken, as part of his practice, you can appeal his decisions. Um, you know, if you feel like you haven't gotten a fair shake, uh, you can go to him and explain why you think you deserve more. And he first did this during 9-11 when... You know, it was very controversial, the amount of money that people were getting, both ways. Some people were upset that um, the victims of 9-11 were getting public funds anyway. Uh, You know, that's something that had never happened before. And there were some criticism of, you know, as Ken says, bad things happen to good people every day, and we don't give them money. You know, lots of people will get in car accidents today, and they're insured, but we don't give to a fund that will save them. There was no money for Katrina. The victims of Katrina didn't get some public fund. The victims of 9-11 got a public fund because otherwise they were going to sue the airlines out of the sky. And so taxpayer money went to the victims' families and Ken, you know, took criticism from some people for giving them any money, and then he took criticism from the victims especially for not giving enough, for undervaluing uh, the lives of the people lost that day. Um, so as part of that process, Ken said, I will meet with you. And I think to his surprise, more than 900 families wanted to meet with him. And he spent 33 months of his life unpaid. You know, he does this work for free, uh, sitting down with family after family uh, and just enduring these terrible stories of loss. And for me, the, that that was probably the thing about Ken that struck me the most was his ability to do that. You know, I talked to his brother who works with him in the lawyer's office. His brother is sort of a business guy. And Ken had asked his brother, who's this very sort of quiet and gentle, nice man, um, to sit in on some of these meetings to act as kind of this emotional ballast. And his brother couldn't do it. His brother did one meeting. was like, I can't do this. I'm not doing this. You know, the meeting he had was with a family who had lost a uh, husband and father and, and the kids that were crying and they had brought photographs and and Ken Feinberg's brother was like, I can't, I can't take that weight. And yet Ken did that more than 900 times. And to me, that's just an amazing testament to who he is. Yeah, and you, I think you show those meetings really well in terms of the, the ones you, 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 he met with more than 900, but obviously you can't show all 900 in the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you show that first one um, the widow who has terminal cancer um, and needs the money fast, and then the other uh, widow who has no idea her husband had two other children with a girlfriend across town. Um, were those easy ones to choose out of maybe the ones he told you about? Well, the first one, yes and no. The first one was pretty obvious, I thought, um, because I think even for Ken... I think Ken went into those meetings not knowing what to expect, and I think after that first meeting, again, for listeners who haven't read the story, it was a widow, a firefighter's widow with two children, and she said she was fine with the settlement, but she needed it right away. And, and he was like, you know, well, there's bureaucracy. I can't, I can't just give you the money. Like, I have to justify my figures, and I have to, you know, why is there such a hurry? And she said, I have terminal cancer. I don't have very long to live. I want to set this money up in a trust fund before I'm gone. And Ken got her the money. He got her the money very quickly, and, and as it turns out, she was she died within a couple of months of 9-11. And, you know, as Ken said to me, he was like, I knew after that one 
that I was in for rough sledding. That first meeting was the one where he went. I think he had a, a bit of an oh crap moment where he was like, I'm in for something here. The, 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 the firefighter's widow and the firefighter ended up having a secret family across town. I actually wrestled pretty hard about including that in the story. Um, for me, it was this super compelling anecdote, but you know, ethically, a part of me was worried that 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 firefighter's widow still doesn't know that this other secret family exists. And if she somehow reads this story and recognizes herself in the description, am I the one who's telling her? And I didn't particularly want that <laughs> responsibility. I didn't want to be that person. But at the same time, that story and what, how Ken dealt with it, and in the end, he didn't tell the firefighter's widow either. He wrote two checks, one for the original family and another one for the secret family, if you want to call it that. Um, and he decided it wasn't his job. You know, After many sleepless nights, he decided it wasn't his job to tell her either, mostly because he was scared what would happen to her, um, that she was so distraught over the loss of this man that if she then found out that this man wasn't who she thought she was, but wasn't who she thought he was, and who knows what she might do. So I wrestled with including that anecdote at all in the story. Um, you know, as you know, I put it in. I decided ultimately that that it needed to be there. But that's one of those sort of, you know, you teach journalism. That's one of those ethical dilemmas that's, that's hard to teach. What do you do there? I, I'm still not sure I made the right decision. Have you heard any, have you heard whether or not anything has come out of that? Including no, no, it? no, I haven't heard. Um, uh, Ken, Ken had assumed that she had she knew by now, but he he didn't he didn't know for sure. Um, and so, so yeah, I don't know. Did he did he express any concern about you using that anecdote or that story? Um, no, we talked about it. I mean, he, he, we talked about a number of different meetings, and uh, ultimately, all this all of those meetings will. Um, you know, I don't know how this works, but all of them were recorded, and they're you know sealed for a certain amount of time. You know, eventually all of those meetings will be released. Um, you know, as, as part of the public record. This this was taxpayer money. Uh, unlike most of the funds that have come since, like Boston or Newtown, which were uh, you know donor funded uh, funds where people just gave money voluntarily. Nine Eleven is is it's taxpayer money. It was. Um, you know, a congressional act that, that made that fund. So all that information will eventually become public. I think not for many years, but but yeah, it, that was just one of those, you know, you run in, when you write stories like this, you run into those moments where you're sort of like, well, what's the right thing to do here? And it's very easy to say you just serve the story, and I think that anecdote does serve the story. Um, but But there is a woman out there with children who lost her husband, and, and I like Ken, I wouldn't want to be responsible for anything terrible happening. Let's uh, let's go back to the the lead of the story. Can you talk a little bit about why you set up the story the way you did with that kind of the hypothetical uh, on the boat? Uh, what what might happen and, and kind of talk about that setup? Well, I, I wanted to explain. I think every time you uh, you know in a film, they always wrestle with sort of the exposition. There's always that poor guy who has to tell the story. Well, now you have to go here because if you don't do this, then this will happen. And it's, 
is always the clunky part of the movie where you're trying to explain like why 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 does he have to go into the volcano? Well, because blah 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 blah. Uh, and there's always that guy, usually played by like Paul Giamatti, who has to like tell the story. Um, so I have to I had to have that bit of exposition in here where I explain what Ken does uh, that that he's not the guy who takes care of insurance and he's not the guy who you know takes care of this. He's the guy who takes care of funds that take place after tragedies, which is a relatively modern phenomenon. You know, this is not something, this is not a job that existed in, you know, 1986. Um, so I was trying to come up with a way to, to, to explain that, and as it happens, as I was on the ferry boat going to see Ken for the first time in Martha's Vineyard, he's a sort of escape in Martha's Vineyard, um, I was sitting on the bow of the ship with all these other passengers, and you know, because I'm a creepy guy like I normally do, I was just sort of eavesdropping and watching people, and um, and I just got to thinking. I just noticed the backpacks lying on the deck, and I noticed the man with the blueprints too. But I noticed the kind of cagey guy drinking a beer early in the morning with a black bag over his shoulder, and I was like, "Well, what if one of these backpacks explodes? What if that guy pulls out a gun?" And this is the kind of thing that Ken would deal with. If 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 we had been struck by lightning, there wouldn't be a fund. If that ship sank out of some fault of the ship or of the captain. Uh, if another vessel collided with it, then there would be lawsuits and there would be insurance coverage. Only if that, man, that kid with the black bag pulls out a gun or only if one of those backpacks explodes do people feel it necessary to donate money. And that's how I set up that situation. And that if that fund did, if something terrible had happened on that ferry ride and if a fund had been set up in response to it, the man I was going to see would be the man, invariably would be the man who would disperse that money. And so that was my way of sort of leading into the story in a way that I hoped would draw the reader in. That that wasn't just exposition, it was something a little sinister and maybe a little creepy, and, and, and that would kind of draw you along into the story of Ken. What, uh, let's, let's talk about the ending, too. Um, the The ending especially when you got to the dollar amounts for all the victims of those tragedies that you listed. Um, I don't know what, the first time I read the story, I like had to stop when I got to the new town, um, the listing there, uh, with the dollar amount for those, those kids. Um, and I, I literally had to put it down for like five minutes, even though I only had like three more paragraphs to read. Um, can you talk about that ending and kind of how you decided to go that route? And did you expect the reader to be kind of, I don't know, not necessarily shocked, but impacted that way by that type of ending? I mean, I'd be lying if I said I didn't want readers to feel something. I mean, not just with this story, but with any story I write. Like, I'm hoping that the reader gets some feeling out of it, whether it's sadness or anger or joy. You know, I'm hoping to transmit something there. And I've talked elsewhere about that being our you know, as someone who writes stories for a living, that being our little bit of magic, is that, that I can take someone, hopefully, 10,000 miles away and make them feel something. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I wanted readers to feel something with this story. And what I wanted to get across more than anything is sort of the burden that Ken carries, that he carries with him for having done this work. And my, you know, I sort of list tragedies toward the end and how much people got. And that's partly because, you know, these are the facts of it. This is what we've decided that this life is worth. 
and or this arm is worth or this leg is worth and I think there's sort of a curiosity factor about those figures but but also that's ultimately what Ken does that he's not fixing the, the, the problem he's not bringing anyone back to life he is not retroactively preventing the tragedy he's not an accident investigator who will hopefully prevent these things from happening in the future he's only the guy who does his best to pick up the pieces and that paragraph for me where I sort of list off victims and what they were worth or what they got paid or what their families got paid was my way of trying to bring home that point, that ultimately this is almost saintly work that he does and that the rewards are fairly small for him. Um, he sees it as work that is necessary and that must be done, and he believes he is the best person to do the job, and so he does the job. And the job ultimately is that he writes that figure next to someone's name. And so that's what that paragraph is. It's, 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 it is blunt. I mean, I, I, did, I didn't want to sugarcoat it. You know, I hate when people, um, you know, they talk about something like suicide, and they'll use a word like passed away, or an expression like passed away. But they try to soften it, and I don't like that in a story. I think, I think if you say someone killed themselves, so that's what they did. And in this case, you know, the temptation would be to try to soften it for the reader, you know, what happened there. Um, but I don't think that's right. I don't, that's not my job, is to make you... My job is not to make the reader feel better, <laughs> you know, that these tragedies happened. It's horrific that these tragedies happened. And that, for whatever reason, people decide that money is the solution to the problem. You know, I think it's something we need to think about. Um, it's a pretty American instinct to see something bad happen to people but only certain things, explosions or shootings or things like that, and then write a check. You know, that's, a, that's a, in some ways an interesting reaction. And that's what that paragraph is. That paragraph is a slap in the face that says that the families in Newtown, you know, I can't remember the exact figure, but $200 and some thousand dollars uh, for each of those 20 children. And, you know, that's a fairly horrible, <laughs> you know, uh, Newtown for me, still affects me when I think about it, and I want people to be affected by it. I don't think we should try to make ourselves feel better about those things. You know, it's a tragedy, and there's no higher reason that it happened. I don't believe it had anything to do with God. I don't believe it had anything to do with fate. I believe it had to do with a guy with a gun that he shouldn't have had who shot a bunch of kids, you know, in the weeks before Christmas. And that, we shouldn't we shouldn't try to pave that over or make ourselves feel better about it. Um, Have you read so, Eli Saslaw's story? I did. Eli Saslaw's story on that thing, well, if it doesn't win a Pulitzer, it should. It, that story That story is um, an incredible piece of reporting apart from anything else. Uh, but it shows that, you know, we, can, we, we might move on or forget about this stuff, but the families who are still missing those children aren't moving on. And just because they got a check for two hundred and some thousand dollars doesn't mean they've moved on. Um, and I don't think we should forget about them. I don't think we should allow ourselves to forget about them. So you putting that story down, while in some ways that's a writer's nightmare, <laughs> is that someone doesn't finish a story or that they put it down. Uh, uh, in some ways, I'm glad that it did affect you. Uh, you know, I think that that says something about you and it says something about the story, I hope. Yeah, yeah, I just needed uh, a little bit of time to uh, to get my brain back in order. I actually have not been able, I've not finished Eli's story yet. 
Um, and I don't know what it is. Uh, maybe it's the fact that I have a, a first a daughter who's in the first grade. Um, yeah. Well, no, Newtown, Newtown, I mean, I'm with you on that. I have a seven and a five-year-old, and I have not been affected by a tragedy like Newtown. Because what you do, I think, invariably what every parent does, and, you know, obviously Newtown is not about us, but what, what every parent does is imagine themselves in the same situation. And especially when you have children who are the exact same age as the children who are lost. And so it, it's, it's hard. I mean, reading Eli's story, I mean, I was bawling my eyes out reading Eli's story. And that, again, goes back to that magic, you know, that Eli can go to Newtown and write a story in Washington that I read in Port Hope and cry over. You know, that's the, that's the, that's the, the power of this kind of work. And... You know, the other thing I thought of when I'm reading Eli's story is, is apart from I'm thinking about that family, you know, who he profiles, but I'm thinking of Eli. You know, I'm thinking of the reporting he did, the work he must have done to get that access, uh, the quiet nights in the hotel rooms after he left that family, when he's sitting in front of his computer writing that story. You know, I, I'm thinking about that. And in a way that Ken takes on these tragedies, you know, some burden from them. You know, writers who write about them also take on that tragedy. And Eli, you know, Eli doesn't know Newtown the way the families know Newtown, but he knows Newtown better than most of us. And I think he did us a favor by sharing what he learned. And, and you know, that's the job. What's been the hardest story you've written? Emotionally? Yeah. Um... This one wasn't pleasant, uh, but I would say the hardest for me emotionally was one I wrote a few years ago, uh, the things that, that carried on the story of um, how a soldier gets back from Iraq. Uh, you know, I followed uh, one soldier's journey back from Iraq to you know, the cemetery he's buried in just down the road from his mom's house. And um, that story knocked me flat. Like, it was... I went into a very deep depression after that story, and it was, it was partly, it was strange, it was partly because of how heavy the material was, um, you know, and how, how hard those conversations are, but it was partly because after it was finished, I had this feeling like I was lost a little bit, you know, I had that, for eight months, I had that story to work on, and I was really driven to write that story as well as I could, and then when it was gone... You know, I didn't really know what to do with myself, and I didn't, I didn't know what I could write that would ever match it. Uh, you know, I still don't think I'll ever write anything that matches it. So that story was the hardest to work on by far, I think. But this story had its own, you know, Ken was very patient and generous and kind with me. Um, but it, I, I did do things like go to the scenes of these tragedies. You know, I did go to, to Ground Zero and... I went to the Boston Marathon bombing site, and, you know, I tried to force myself to think of it and to think about what happened and what it means and how I would feel in that situation. And when you go to those places, which I think you do have to do, not just as a journalist but as a human, um, you know, it's not nice. It's, they're not nice things to think about, and, but I think, I think it's important that we do think about them. You know, this story hasn't done, this story hasn't gotten a lot of readers, uh, you know, one of the reasons I'm happy to do this podcast is, is I would like people to read this story. Um, 
But I think it is a story that a lot of people look at and think, I don't want to read that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's something I don't want to know about. But I think it's important that we know about these things. Yeah, it's um, it's, it's a really it's a really good piece, um, and and I really really enjoyed reading it, and and I think it's just like I I never even thought that there would be a person out there who would do that job. I guess I never even thought that job would exist, and, and it didn't until a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, twenty years ago, that job doesn't exist, and that's that's the other thing. It's a very sort of modern job. Uh, you know, it, it has to dovetail with two sort of interesting phenomenon, one and uniquely American phenomenons were phenomenon which is one of which is these tragedies you know uh people shooting up elementary schools or flying airplanes in the buildings or bombing marathons which is not something we did a whole lot of that long ago um and then the other thing is that response of giving money which really doesn't happen anywhere else in the world you know that that is a uniquely american thing and one thing you know i'm canadian and we I can't think. Well, you know, we don't. We haven't had nearly as many sort of tragedies, but I don't think that would be our response. Mm-hmm. You know, because we 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 have a system in place that sort of, you know, we're a much more socialist society. So we, it's just always there. And I, you know, when I was first talking to my boss about this story, I was like, I don't understand why Americans are so generous when it comes to tragedies like this, and yet seems so ungenerous about things like health care or the poor or, you know, paying taxes for things. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, 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 I see a contradiction there that I don't quite get. Um, and I, don't, I, I still don't, even having done this story, I still don't understand why, why so many Americans seem so upset about things like universal health care, and yet a lot of them would be the same Americans who would write a check because strangers got hit by a bomb while watching a marathon in Boston. I don't, I think that's a contradiction, but, but uh, I don't want to turn this into an anti-American. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, your country's great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I just see something there that's a bit weird. I don't, and I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer. Yeah, I think it's so, I think it's, and, and I never thought about it until I read the story. It is weird, the delineation between what gets money and what doesn't. Yeah. It's, it just, it doesn't make any sense at all. No, it doesn't. Like, why, why, why 9-11 but not Katrina? Mm-hmm. Now, we said, you know, I said it's because, you know, in some ways it was a cynical way to save the airlines from getting sued out of the skies, but, but there wasn't that same financial outpouring for Katrina. Um, and they were just as innocent in terms of their victimhood, uh, you know, the people who died in, in New Orleans, and just that you know just as much at the mercy of whatever force was going to get them and yet there wasn't the same outpouring and i don't know if it was because it's a human inflicted you know is there a difference between a man-made disaster and a natural disaster in our response to them is it because of who the victims were you know what 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 was it why, why is it why is it different or even within some of the stuff that ken's dealing with like the four hood the Fort Hood massacre, um, the fun there is tiny compared to Boston. Uh, I mean, it's, it's infinitesimal compared to Boston. Uh, you know, why? More people died. You know, many more people died in Fort Hood than, than in Boston. Is it because there was no film of it? You know, is it because it didn't take place at this happy event? 
is it because they were soldiers and so you know they assume some risk just by being a soldier you know like what's the difference and it's i think my problem here is i'm trying to apply rational rational logic to what is ultimately an irrational situation but but i don't yeah i don't get it yeah well let's move on to another tragedy since that's what we're talking about today <laughs> Because you're talking to me, and that's what I read. That's right. Well, I'll tell you, my students always accuse me of assigning the most depressing, depressing stories on the planet. Um, and they actually, they, they, they've actually called me on it a couple times. But, but it's what I, I mean, it's what I assign. I mean, I think one year I had them read uh, Kennel Trash by oh, Kelly okay. Benham. Yeah. Then they read Fatal Distraction by oh, Gene Weingarten. That is the heaviest of heavy. Then I think we read um, Final Salute. Okay. And uh, maybe a couple other pieces, and I think we all were pretty close to needing therapy by the end of the semester. <laughs> so I have, I've learned I need to sprinkle a little bit of uh, some levity in there, levity and happiness. This <laughs> into is my true. This, believe me, this is true. This is true. Like you have to, yeah, you got to mix it up. I mean, I've had this talk with my boss where every story I pitched is something <laughs> like. And after this, when I said to him, I was like, I need to do something light. You know, uh, I don't think I can do another happy one right away. Anyway. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the the JFK piece, um, the flight okay. from Dallas. Uh, I'm curious, knowing that there were going to be about a million JFK pieces uh, last November because it was the 50th anniversary, um, what made you want to go ahead and, and, and tackle one and, and be part of that, I guess, that crush of 50th anniversary stories that were coming out? Um, well, that story originally uh, started as a screenplay. I originally and i want to say this was probably three years ago um pitched it as a movie and wrote a good chunk of a script and i got to that place where you know i had lots of sort of hollywood meetings and um people expressing interest and stuff like that but i needed someone to commit to it before i would commit to it uh you know i didn't want to perhaps stupidly, I didn't want to write the whole thing without knowing that someone would buy it. And I think, you know, when people are starting new careers, like writing a script, I think part of the deal is that you have to do some spec work, that you have to do some work without knowing that you're going to get paid for it. But I always have a hard time giving up paid work for unpaid work. You know, I think of myself as a professional writer, so I wanted someone to pay me to write that script. And, uh, you know, I'd never written a script before, so of course no one wanted to pay me to write one. You know, I had no proof that I could do it. So it kind of died on the vine, and and there was there were a bunch of other sort of Kennedy scripts floating around. Um, there was one called Jackie by Darren Aronofsky, who did The Wrestler, um, which was about you know Jackie in that day. Um, there was Parkland, which was sort of centered on the hospital, and that one actually did get made. Um, so even, you know, a couple of years ago, you could see that this crush was coming, this crush that you're talking about. Um, but at the same time, I'd done a lot of work. I'd done a lot of research on the script. I didn't want it just to, just to disappear. And my boss, my editor, Peter, knew that I'd been working on it. And as it so happens, Esquire's 80th anniversary issue was October, and they were sort of looking at this long survey of time and what had happened over these last 80 years and what it meant for the future and... And, you know, you could argue that the seminal event in American history over the last, or one of the seminal events in American history over the last 80 years was the assassination of JFK. So I took the research that I had done 
for the script and and instead put it into a magazine story just so it wasn't for nothing. <laughs> uh, how did the reporting differ on this piece, like versus if you were doing a piece on, on like on the Feinberg piece? Well, there's a lot fewer people to talk to, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> um, that makes it more uh, difficult, right? You think? Y- yeah, I mean it. it for me, it, I mean, it's not a kind of story that I normally do. I don't normally do historical pieces. You know, normally I'm talking about, you know, people who are at an event. I'm, I, I'm doing as firsthand as I can. Um, and in this case, there just aren't that many people who are still alive from that plane. You know, it was 50 years ago. And uh, luckily, you know, on the flip side, there is this tremendous archive of material that's available at places like the LBJ Library in Austin. And so this story was really, and again, I, I've been doing it, the research sort of two or three years earlier as I was working on the script, but it was about, you know, documents. I was looking at transcripts and old interviews, also trying to talk to people who were on the plane. For instance, John Trimble, the radio operator, I got him, I found him. Um, but then, you know, someone like Bill Moyers, who was on that plane, has never talked about it and wouldn't talk about it with me. Uh, so, you know, there was limited <laughs> first-hand information. Most of it came from these documents. And, but again, luckily, there's this tremendous uh, amount of research that's been done, and, and um, so I just kind of dived into that for a while. Yeah, I know I, I, I did the one historical piece on Stella Walsh for SB Nation, mm-hmm. and I've, that was the first time I'd done anything historical, and it was so hard to make everything come to life. And yeah, because it, normally when you, when you write a story like this, it's the details that really sell it. And those details come from sort of, you know, they normally come, for me, from long interviews with people uh, and me asking a thousand questions. And, and hopefully you get to that place where you find that little moment. Um, and here, I mean, so many times I wanted to talk to people and, it, you know, they're no longer with us. And in some ways, I think the story... You know, one of the reasons I like that story idea as a script is because you can make up, you know, those moments. I'll give you an example. There, there's a moment where Matt Kilduff, who's the press secretary, who had announced um, Kennedy's death, they're on the plane going back to Washington. He had lost a son. His son had drowned while he was traveling with the president at some point. And uh, he goes back to see Jackie in the back of the plane who's sitting there covered in blood next to the casket holding her husband. And she and Matt Kilduff have a conversation about loss. And they have a conversation about how you get over it. You know, because she had lost a baby shortly before she lost her husband. Now she loses her husband. Now, now she... Um, and now uh, Matt Kilduff is talking about his son, and they have what I imagine is a very strong and meaningful conversation. In my script, it was one of the essential scenes. Well, in the story, all it is is, I know they have this conversation, but I don't know exactly what it was. So it's basically a line in the story that they have this conversation about loss. I would have loved to have been able to talk to either Matt Jackie or Matt Kildoff about that conversation, but they're both gone. And so, so that's, you know, a historical story suffers in some ways, because of that, you know, there's these little holes that I would normally try to fill, uh, but I couldn't. But but luckily, there was enough information out there, enough interviews have been done and kept at the library that that you know I could do my best. 
is there other questions I still have? <laughs> There's a thousand of them. Um, but, but I feel like that story has enough in it to sort of get you from Dallas to Washington. Or I hope it does, anyway. You still have hope for the script? <laughs> uh, I guess you always have hope. Parkland, Parkland didn't do very well. Um, and, you know, I really was, when I was originally doing it, I was thinking of it as a 50th anniversary thing. So, um, so I, I guess my answer is no. I don't have any hope <laughs> for the script. <laughs> I would, I, one of the things I've learned in my limited dealings with Hollywood is that, that, that hope isn't always a, on your side. You kind of have to let things go. Well, you recently uh, tweeted a lot of pictures from Antarctica. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us what you're doing down there? I was taking a lot of pictures and tweeting them. Um, <laughs> um, I'm doing a story for a magazine called Afar, A-F-A-R, um, who very nicely emailed me, uh, an editor named Jeremy Som, who uh, follows me on Twitter, and he emailed me, and he said, um, he said, are you interested you know, doing any work, and uh, I'm kind of busy. I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm flattered, but I'm, I'm busy, and uh, I got a lot going on, and um, he was like, oh, well, we were thinking of sending you to Antarctica, and I was like, oh, well, let's not be so hasty, like, we can talk about this, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and very, very happily, I ended up going to Antarctica, you know, for this for this story for afar. It was awesome, dude, the best. Uh, when's, when's the story going to run? Do you know? Uh, it's due March the 5th. I think it's going to run in one of their summer issues. Um, uh, i got to figure out how to write it. It's sort of, you know, I don't think I've ever been that dumbstruck by something I've been watching. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Antarctica is just, it's the closest I think most of us will get to visiting another planet. Mm -hmm. It's just, everything's giant and white and just, you know, we were in these beautiful places, and all the time I was thinking, you know, this place is gorgeous and amazing, and if this ship left me here, I would be done for. <laughs> like, this place would kill me in minutes. <laughs> and so you're sort of like, it's this weird thing of this this beautiful, beautiful, amazing place, and at the same time, you have to remember it's Antarctica. Like, it's, it's really inhospitable. <laughs> there are leopard seals and killer whales and freezing cold, but... Right. And there was but, just that, that one ship that was stuck in the ice down there just recently, exactly. right? And when we, well, you know, one of my favorite parts of our trip is it was on the National Geographic Explorer, which has some, it's not an icebreaker, but it's been ice strengthened. So it has some capabilities that other ships don't. And there were five um, staffers, research scientists, who had been, at Palmer Station, which is a U.S. research station, for too long. <laughs> you know, they, 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 the ice has been really thick this year, and the, sh the ship that normally would have retrieved them did not retrieve them. And they've been there for something like, I think the longest of them had been there like seven months. Um, and so we went and got them. And one of my favorite parts of the whole trip was watching these five people kind of acclimate back to civilization. Like... It was like we picked up astronauts, and, you know, thing, I remember the first night, one of the guys just stayed at the bar drinking pints of beer, because he was like, draft beer, like, oh my God, you know, or, you know, the buffet that we'd sort of been taking granted on the ship, taking for granted on the ship, you know, they were like, you know, oranges, crispy bacon, you know, these things that they hadn't had, 
And I stood on the deck with him, you know, as we sailed back. The port you go from is Ushuaia, this, this uh, city at the bottom of Argentina. And we, I was with them, I was standing on the deck with them as we went into port, and they, it was like the colors and cars. And one of them saw a plane for the first time in seven months. He was like, oh, I kind of forgot that we can do that. You know, it's like, it was so fascinating for me to watch them come back to Earth. Do you know what I mean? It was like this, um, well, I loved it funny given that you've written a book about astronauts who are stuck in space for stuck in space. I kept thinking <laughs> about those guys all the time and I mean one of my big things especially this will sound wankier than I want it to but as I reach middle age and have spent much of my life being a very angry person I've I've tried really hard to sort of become grateful and to appreciate what I have and to sort of see things more empathetically I've tried to go on the, <laughs> on the journey that Ken Feinberg went on <laughs> Um, and watching them be so grateful for really simple things, the same way those astronauts were grateful for things like a hot shower or a comfortable bed, you know, things that I have every day. Um, there was something to it. There was something really kind of cool about watching them just come back, and it made me appreciate, it helped me on my own sort of path to appreciating the things that I have. That's cool. So, are, uh, anything else you're working on that you can talk about? Uh, I'm in the middle of Rob Ford. Um, uh, this will be in the, you know, an upcoming issue of Esquire. Um, I've been watching Rob Ford for six weeks. Uh, Has got to been probably fun. Yeah, you know, it's been. You know, we we're talking about how I needed an antidote after Ken Feinberg. Uh, Rob Ford is a pretty good antidote. Um, he is, it has been bizarre and weirdly entertaining and frustrating and maddening and all sorts of, but it's been, it has been an adventure. <laughs> all within an hour of my house. Uh, you know, I live outside of, you know, I went to Antarctica for an adventure and uh, I found one right here on my doorstep. Um, <laughs> Following Rob Ford around has been a kick. Great. Well, we'll look forward to it. Yeah, I look forward to it, too, because that means I've written it. Right. <laughs> well, Chris, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. Uh, thanks, Matt. And hopefully um, maybe after Rob Ford we can have a, a, a more uh, jovial conversation. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> Try not to depress your students too much. <laughs> thanks. All right. Thanks a lot, Matt. We've been talking with Chris Jones. Jones is a writer-at-large for Esquire magazine. He's also a back-page columnist for ESPN the magazine. Jones recently wrote the piece, Kenneth Feinberg, the nation's leading expert at picking up the pieces. We've linked to that story as well as many more by Jones on our website, www.gangrythepodcast.com. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University 
and is a production of the Journalism and Digital Media Department. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.